that? Thank well, vibration is fine, but is it a black? Really yeah. Black ray sometimes screws the mic up. Oh, is it? Oh, you get the uh, yeah, 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 but it's not wireless. It might be alright. Oh, okay. Yeah, take yeah. pictures. I can take pictures. Yeah, yeah. Well, it makes a noise though. Like every single time, right? Is that okay? Yeah, it's fine as long as it's not like a noise like. Ew. Or like flash. You know what I mean? That's fine. But that'll even that'll even seem cool. Yeah. Cool. So instead of doing like a sort of stodgy, this is George from Love. Let's just you know go. Whatever you like, man. Your show. This must be a pretty surreal experience for you coming back to a you know campus radio station. This is kind of where you started. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, I mean, I you know when I got into this business, however many years ago, the idea was just to be an overnight radio guy. That's all I wanted to do out of this career. I didn't even know you could do that, but I accidentally through my love of motorcycles, picked up a course calendar for Humber College to go and become uh, a rider. A rider. And that was it. And when I was flipping through the pages, I saw radio broadcasting in Humber College, and so that's what I did. And so I remember the first day I walked into a studio, I thought, this is, this feels home. This is where, it's still where I'm the most comfortable is in a radio studio, yeah. easily. So it must have been a really surprising rise for you to come to sort of CBC. This sort of it's crazy. It's, it's completely surreal. It's not even part yeah. of the... Yeah, I know. I'm not the kind of guy that has a plan to begin with anyway, and yeah. I... Uh, I don't know how this happened. Mm -hmm. And I'm often reminded from my friends from the old days, just laugh at me. They go, <laughs> what the hell? Because if there was somebody who was least likely yeah. to have a talk show on CBC, it's me. Exactly. And I know people say that, but it's like legitimately, if you ask anybody who knew me, it's like, this is not what's supposed to happen. <laughs> Sam and I preparing for the interview, just like, how did this happen? Like, yeah. how do you, like, CBC is this sort of this old, stodgy institution, or at least has this sort of reputation of being that. And, you know, you have Peter Mansbridge on, mm -hmm. on CBC. Like, how, do you see yourself as sort of a counterpoint to him? No, like, not at all. Where do you situate yourself in that broader if I If I can bask in just some of the glow that comes off Peter Mansbridge, <laughs> I'm okay. You know the funny thing about Peter is, Peter's the reason why uh, the show can continues to exist at CBC. Um, I didn't know him. I met him once when uh, during the, the war, you know, when the attacks on Afghanistan started and there was this concert called Music Without Borders uh, at the Air Canada Centre in Toronto. A bunch of bands played. Peter introduced a band. I introduced a band. I was working at Much Music at the time and I'd met him there. Being He was super Canadian too. He had like one of those light tan leather jackets, you know, the kind that have the fringes on it, like super like legitimate, authentic Canadian. And we had met uh, a girl I was dating at the, uh, roughly around that time, uh, was working at CBC. So he, he knew of me through her, but that was it. We didn't know each other. Mm. And every now and then, uh, after a much news hit, I would get my voicemail in the office, and it would be a voicemail from Mansbridge. And it would just be like, hey, uh, Strombo, it's uh, Peter here. And he'd be like, uh, saw what you were saying about Britney, Britney Spears. That's hilarious. Like, Peter's really cool. So yeah. when, when CBC was first approaching me about going to work there, I actually didn't even call them back. I didn't see myself working at CBC. I had a lot of the same preconceived notions that many people have about the CBC. Thank God my preconceived notions were wrong yeah. because I'm really enjoying it. But I remember cold calling Peter at his desk. Again, he didn't really know me. Uh, you know, I met him a couple times by this point. Cold called him at his desk, and I said, dude, here's the thing. They're, um, yeah. they're talking to me about coming here. What do you think? And he took the time after the National one night to just lay down what I could expect. Hmm. And a big reason why I went there is because Peter. And after the deal was up, the first 18 months, if Peter hadn't publicly supported the show, and when he would go and speaking to us, talk about the show, yeah. we never would have come back, right? It was This is Peter. Peter really is a big player here. Right, so, so that's tremendous. Now, you become this sort of renowned media personality that's known for getting tremendous interviews. You're maybe the foremost sort of interviewer 
on OK and TV next to Peter Mansbridge. So I feel sort of underqualified to interview. Oh, so God. the first question I want to ask... You're a human, man. That means you're, you're overqualified. <laughs> that's the trick to a good interview. That's, be a person. That's awesome. Don't, so, don't be a broadcaster. Be a person. So what would, you, what would your question be? What would the first question be? Would it be just to do sort of small talk kind of thing? Like oh, yeah. That? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And a lot of times in the interview uh, process, I don't even care what the first answer is. I don't care what mm. the second or third answer is. I don't treat every interview like every question is life and death. It's really not because no conversation with a person is life or death. Yeah. What you want to do is be good company and connect with somebody so that the audience who's watching can connect with you and connect with them. You create a comfort zone. In that moment, that person might say the thing, yeah. that one thing that breaks your heart or makes your day. That's it. A lot of interviewers, and again, I, I'm not passing judgment. It's just an observation. But I've sure. seen a lot of interviewers think an interview is a place for them to make a name for themselves. Mm. And it's not. The person you're interviewing is in that spot for a reason. Right. So respect what the accomplishment is and have a real conversation with them. If you do that enough, let other people make the name for you. Yeah. You don't have to make a name for yourself. Others will make the name for you. So uh, could you maybe speak to somebody like your your interrogative, your rhetorical style, sort of this cool hip guy. So, you know, you have these big names and you I'm call them I'm too old to be hip, man. I'm too old to be hip. Was, is that a sort of conscious effort to, no. to get to the heart of people or is that just you sort of being George Strongolopoulos? The... To get to the heart of a person, you have to let them know early that you're a real person, mm -hmm. right? That's it. And that you're not afraid to be a real person. If you don't set the tone, the comfort tone, the intimacy tone, then they're never going to be comfortable. And nor will they allow you to be intimate in those moments, yeah. right? So I... Uh, the, the, the way I speak, like the language or the vernacular, the dude and the man and the whatever, that's, sure. God, if I put that on, that would be so lame, right? <laughs> it's really, I'm just me. And in yeah. fact, I know that that holds me back in a way. I know that there are people in the audience who, who think I'm too informal, <laughs> but I don't care. Like, yeah. well, whatever, man, I'm my mother's son, I'm your friend, so sure. I don't really care, right? And, and, but how in the world do you, you said comfortable? How do you world are you comfortable, or the, are your the people you interview comfortable on CBC and national television? Millions of viewers. Yeah, you seem to actually get them to that point, but it seems like it's a challenge. Cause Man, you have to be. You know, if you have any fears of intimacy, um, you won't be able to pull this job off. <laughs> you have to be able to shed everything. You have to be able to get rid of the audience around you. I ignore the audience in the room. I ignore it. when when I'm talking to the camera. I'm talking to people at home. Yeah. Right, and, and the audience in the studio with me. But when I'm interviewing somebody, I just remove everything else mm. from the equation, mm. and I, I'm straight in the eyes of the person, yeah. right? And I pay attention to them, and, and I need them to pay attention to me. And sometimes it's amazing. Sometimes cats are built to be interviewed, and sometimes like you have to look in their eyes and hold their hands with your <laughs> eyes and say, "Come with me. This will be okay." But look, it doesn't always work. Yeah. You know, lots of times where I do an interview and it bombs, and that's okay too, right? Sure. You know, it really is about being comfortable in the moment. But you have to, I think it has to come from a real place. I don't think this can be contrived. I think you really yeah. genuinely have to be um, okay with who you are, and you have to lose ego, you have to lose all the other stuff that gets in the way, and just be as close to an authentic <laughs> person as you can be. And, and the people will pick up on that. Yeah, so how do you prepare? Because there's such a wide diversion swath of, of people on your show. You've got a Peter McKay, you've got like, you know, the guy Gene Simmons, I think, was on your show. Like Dude, we had Hillary Clinton and Snoop Dogg <laughs> on the same show. <laughs> on the same show. And so how does your approach differ? It doesn't. I mean, it doesn't in that in my, I, I am just me, yeah. so I don't change who I am to do the interview. What, where it's different is that I don't believe a celebrity owes you anything. Yeah. They don't owe me an answer. They don't owe the audience an answer. You know, when, when, when you see interviews really push a celebrity, get to the heart of their personal, well, what does that person ever owe you? 
You know, mm-hmm. Tom Cruise only owes you a good performance in the movie that you pay 12 bucks to go see. They don't owe you anything. You, you try to create an environment where they will say stuff and share things. Mm-hmm. So I approached the interview that way. Peter McKay, different. Politician, Hillary Clinton, different. They owe you everything. Yeah. CEOs owe you everything. Leaders of banks owe you everything. Because we give them so many free passes right. and so many tax breaks. And we give them so much responsibility. They owe us stuff. So I approach Peter very differently than I approach, you know, uh, yeah. somebody else. Like, who's, who's Do you feel like we can get to a Peter McKay through the same sort of personal, informal I approach? So. Or are so. they too guardly? Uh, I, think you, I think you have to look at who the politician is. You're not going to trip up a guy who's mm. the deputy prime minister. You don't get to be, he's not never what he was. You don't, you know, you don't trip up Peter McKay. Yeah. What you do is you create a, con- and, and nor do you set out to. Because then you're then then you're kind of going out to get your interview, right, and make a name for yourself. You don't do that. You just have the conversation. I remember interviewing Maxime Bernier not that long ago, and I I'd, I wanted to get him to talk about the scandal with the things with the you know the, the documents he left at his girl's house. Yeah. And I and I, so my approach to it was, what did you learn from it? And he said, well, I learned to make better choices in women, right, <laughs> which got a laugh from the audience. But I remember sitting there going, wait a minute, she didn't leave the documents. Yeah. You left the documents, and. There's a responsibility and a burden on him, and he had to. And he owned up to it. He's like, "You're right. You're right." And this is what it's about. Um, my my actions led to my my problems, but you have to make sure that you hold these guys accountable, also as a human being. And I think that's really key. Mm-hmm. And so, what do you see as sort of your role with your program on the CBC? You have, like we said, you'll have entertainers, you have politicians. So, how do you sort of conceptualize yourself, and and what is sort of more important in in the program? I don't know that. I don't know that I look at it that way. I mean, I'm sure subconsciously I do a little bit where you try to figure out yeah. what you're supposed to do because then you can try to maybe super serve that, that, that master. Yeah. I mean, I look at it this way. Tell people what happened today mm-hmm. and connect them to really interesting conversations. And through those two hallways, they'll meet at the end and, that, and at the end would ultimately be um, going to bed a little more enriched than you were when you woke up. Mm. Maybe knowing a little more than you did when you woke up. Um, the approach is simple, which is to be good company. That is key to late night space. Canada doesn't have a late night talk show space. We haven't really. Mike Buller did a really good job of it. Mm. When we started ours, it was not to be a version of an American talk show. That's why we didn't have bands for the first five, six years. We didn't have, you didn't even see an audience. You didn't see any of that stuff. A lot of these things that our staples of talk shows, we actually made sure we didn't put in there because we needed to take a few years to find our own identity. Mm-hmm. And we didn't plan our own identity because you, you can't. You can't plan it. You know, we don't have a target demographic. I know this, the sponsors in the network would like to say 25 to 54. That's kind of like the sweet spot. Yeah. But we don't program for 25 to 54. I put 20-year-olds and I put 90-year-olds on. Mm-hmm. You know, we put 40-year-olds. We have conversations about Snoop Dogg and complex Middle East policies, right? We we don't target an audience. I'm of the opinion, and our team is of the opinion, that we'll do the show that we think we need to do, and those will come along, mm. you know, that want to. So in your in your years in the program, can you speak to maybe some, what was a profoundly, like, touching interview for you, or a special moment for you? Um, I'm, like, I'm through and through a Toronto boy, right? Mm. Like, through and through a Toronto boy. And I, and it's, it, what Toronto boys are, like, we're, we're a particular breed mm-hmm. of personality. So when you grow up in Toronto and you listen to punk rock and you're politically engaged, 
Yeah. Right. Uh, you know of a girl called June Colwood. June Colwood was a social activist in Toronto that was fighting for women's rights and poverty rights and fighting for, you know, she opened the first AIDS hospice, yeah. uh, you know, uh, in, in the Western world. And her AIDS hospice was the one that took the photograph of Princess Diana holding the arm of a man who was dying of AIDS. This is early on, too, right? Um, and, you know, they had just identified it, too. It was like it was called GRID before that, you know, before it was even called AIDS. Wow. You know, it was like a gay-related immune deficiency. That's what they were calling it. There were so many questions about AIDS. I remember my mother was a nurse at the time, and she'd come home, and she'd say, there's this crazy disease. There's this thing that these boys are dying from. And, like, it was a real moment. And no one knew how to treat a patient. People were scared. There was so much misinformation. And June Callwood opened this place called Casey House. And Casey House changed perspective. Mm. Of, of what these what these young men were going through. And she continued that through her whole life, right? Her whole life, she was a social activist. So into her 80s, she got a terminal cancer diagnosis. And she, um, again, a legend to, to us. So she, was, uh, she knew she was near the end and she wanted to do one last interview and asked if I would do the interview with her. So I went to her house and we sat in her living room and we turned the cameras on and we talked for about 90 minutes. And we just talked about what it's, you know, a life lived, lessons learned, and what comes now. Yeah. How do you face the end when you know the end is not an abstract concept? The end is within a week or two. Mm-hmm. She knew she the lights were going to get turned off within a week or two. Um, and uh, that was one of those interviews. Brave. She was brave, man. Really, like, amazing to be in the company of that. And uh, that interview was on a Sunday, I think, on the Monday. She was in palliative care, and she was gone within a week. Um, she had passed away. And it's 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 it's... So shitty when somebody like that dies because they have this accumulated knowledge that you'll never be able to to, to share enough of, right? Mm. And in that moment, like watching her bravery um, and her humor and her tenderness was was pretty spectacular. June Callwood is her name. It's online. It's a it's a it's a bit of a cry interview. Like it's one of those. It's a heavy yeah. one. We only aired you know like a TV show twenty minutes of it, but I taped ninety minutes of it, and we gave the rest of roughly mm. ninety, and we gave the rest to her family. Wow. And so they had this interview with her, her, her mother. We, ne- we didn't air it. So where does that inspire you to go? Like, what's next for George Strombolopoulos? Where, I know that you've done some work around the UN food program, and I think you'll be speaking uh, to that effect at, at your lecture here for the Arts Undergraduate Society. Can you speak to maybe why that's important to you? And- to, to, to do that stuff? Yeah. Well, for fear of sounding cliche about it, but I guess some cliches are legit. Sure. Um, it's kind of a... I don't want the kind of life where I'm a solo artist. I like the I like the band. I like the band, and this is um, to me this business and this career is about what can we do. And I know it sounds ridiculous to say that because it sounds so like maudlin. Oh, it's about me. It's a we. No, no. It really legitimately is. If 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 you are a reasonable human being, right, <laughs> and you are in the spotlight for any length of time, and you see all the attention directed at you, you you start to see what it is. You know what's real and what's not real, right? And so if you get all this attention deflected towards you or, or focused on you, what you want to do is deflect it away from you into things that you feel really matter, right? right? So all of this stuff that that we try to shed light on uh, on the air, whether it be the World Food Program or the World Economic Forum or, you know, the David Suzuki Foundation or whatever organization, Artists for Peace and Justice, it's not about what I'm doing. It's about shining a light on what's already going on, right? I think that's important, but I think that's important just as a person. Mm. I just think that, you know, sometimes when you have profile, you get a lot of get a lot of breaks, you get a lot of perks, and you don't want to disrespect the universe by just mm. taking sure, yeah. and not giving, you know? 
So maybe one day, you know, when you're 90 and the next George. God, if I ever get to be 90. <laughs> yeah. 90 is a lot. Dude, I made so many bad choices in my life that I, 90 is not on the cards. Yeah, someday some young buck will come to, to your house and do a 90-minute interview yeah. with you as well. And sort of you'll be reflecting on your life. And what sort of, what will make you, reflecting on your life, what would make you happy about the experiences that you've shared? What, what are your goals sort of for that interview? If I can... I mean, I think I can, but if I can keep my head about me uh, and continue to be a member of a team, then that'll make me happy. I truly don't have ego about this. This is not about accomplishment to me. Um, accomplishment's hollow. You know, it's not about, I have no type A personality driving me. I don't even have an ambition, truly. I have determination, and I don't know where it comes from. I don't know why I have it. I don't know where it's going to lead me to, and I don't worry about it. I'm okay with the questions. Don't need the answers mm-hmm. to to my place in this in this world, right? So, if I can carry on with my friends, doing the things that make us feel fulfilled, then I'll feel like I didn't waste the opportunity. Yeah. You know, in life, um, you got to be there for others. You got to be about social justice. I don't think to me that's even a debate. Like you have to be there for others. I know there's a segment of the population that truly believes in a you're in it for yourself. Sure. I reject that summarily. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, because um, there's no such thing as a self-made person. There's no such thing as an individual success story. You uh, you need a lot of breaks, man, to yeah. pull this off. Because there are a lot of really cool people who work really hard in life and they don't get to accomplish their goals. That's not because you're better than them. You're just luckier. Absolutely. And, 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 and I, at least that's how I look at it. And so if I can kind of keep navigating through the shark-infested <laughs> waters of the business like that, um, then then that's good. You know, I think that'll be okay. I mean, I'm new to it, right? I've been in the business for 20 years, and I'll tell you that this is what, what year is it? 2012, right? So I started in college in 91, but my first job in, in 92. Um, and 20, College radio station? Well, college radio station in 91. 92, I started working in another radio station while I was still in college, mm-hmm. and it was just a small, closed-circuit thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my head, like, I'm still that guy mm-hmm. in 92, and anybody who's 70 will tell you the same thing. If you ask somebody, what's your, what age do you identify with? It's not the age they are. I mean, I identify as 27, but I'm really truly 21. Like, I'm the guy that went into my first radio studio, right? <laughs> That's who I am. And when I'm on the air on, on the TV show now or when I'm on the air on the radio show I have or when I'm on stage at UBC or when I'm on stage at the Winnipeg Jets home, wherever I am, I'm the guy who was 21 who's just trying this out, right? So I'm still that guy. And I'm always going to be that guy. Mm. And if, if as long as I don't lose that guy, then then I think that's what this is. At least then you just you pulled it off, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean you're that guy, and now you've come full circle, and you're sort of this, in this danky college radio station again. And Dude, you should see where I do my radio show now. <laughs> I, uh, the radio show that we have on CBC Sunday nights, I shoot it, I record it in one of two places. Mm. There's a closet like this. Here <laughs> is is balling. No. This is Master P compared to the to the, the show that I do the radio I, show. I should say for our audience, we're basically knee to knee here. Yeah, we're knee to knee. <laughs> but you know what I do? My, a lot of times, the other place that I record it, I have a little Pro Tools rig on top of my piano in my living room, and that's where I make the show. Yeah. I'll just sit there and I'll uh, and I'll just record, and you know, I'll, I'll play a song when another song is playing. I'll just play the piano a little bit. And I'll just kind of connect myself to the song that I'm listening to, and then I move into the next one. This is. This is going to sound so ridiculous for you to hear this from you, but I'm telling you, really soak this moment up. Like, enjoy this. Because this moment you feel now won't be here mm-hmm. in four years. It won't even be here in two years, probably, right, when you leave. Um, 
soak this moment up. Take lots of pictures of this moment. Take lots of video of this moment. Take lots of video and pictures of your friends in this moment. Because if you're lucky enough to be able to do something like this 10 or 15 or 20 years from now, these days in this room with this board are going to matter to you. When I worked at the Fan, a sports talk station in Toronto in 1993, this board you're using here is the same board that I use. The wow. same board, man. <laughs> right? And um, and at the edge, this was the board they put in at CFNY when I worked at that rock station in Toronto. Gordon, same you board. set the stage, describe the board a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's, just like, it's, like a, it's a classic double it's a WBS, right? <laughs> what is this, a 12-channel? Or 9, what is it, 3, 6, 9, 10-channel? Classic. It looks like they put this together in the 80s. It's black and... Uh... Yeah, and I used this board in the 2000s, man. Like, this board is... Enjoy this, because it's all going... It's Everything's digital, which is fine. Um... But if you really want to truly understand, like, people's brains aren't digital, man. People's brains are analog. Yeah. We're a tactile people. So I'm not saying don't be digital. I'm all MP3 in my house sure. and lots of vinyl. But if you want to understand people, people are analog. You know, you're talking with centuries of evolution. We're analog still. So enjoy this stuff here. This is it, you know. And in 20 years from now, you're going to be like, I didn't miss it. Mm-hmm. I didn't miss it. I remember playing songs on my college radio station. I remember playing on vinyl. You know, I remember playing it on CD. I remember that experience. And all of us in our life, in this business, always try to recreate the feeling we had when we did that. Wow. What, what was it that brought you into this space? Is it the same reasons that are still sort of driving you when you're on CBC? Into, into which space? Right. In, into, the, into the campus radio station when you were that 21-year-old boy. You said you still envision yourself as that. What was it that inspired you to, uh, um, to step in? I, without exaggeration, I legitimately was the guy that no future... No job, uh, no education, no real hope for what I was... You know, I didn't have a plan in my life. In my family, quite honestly, the goal was, could I get a job as a bus driver? Or could I get a job at the Ford plant down the road where my grandfather worked and worked in the assembly line? These were the aspirations in my family. And by the way, those are legitimate aspirations. Those are cool aspirations. But that's what it was. Mm. In my neighborhood, my friends either... I drove a forklift at the uh, what was then the Carlin plant, which became a Molson plant, or we drove a forklift at the airport, which is what I did. I drove a forklift at Pearson Airport um, for a company while I worked at a sandwich shop. So this is what we aspired to do. The the concept of making a living being creative, is, you might as well have said you're going to be an astronaut. Like it's that, you might as well have said you're going to be Kate Moss. Like it's that far from it. So I, I never, you know, I, I've never really thought about what it was but I knew I had determination for something and it, but it was really about music and stories you know movies and music are my first love like movies are where it's at from my headspace you know um, and songs mm-hmm. like I, I for better or for worse I'm, I'm a very I've just re- I've built a really nice strong exterior around me and I am tough right like I'm a tough dude I don't care what people say that kind of shit like I've got that around me right but I do that because I'm a really feeling guy. Like, I feel everything. Songs are the thing that I can't protect myself from. Mm. Whatever the tone of the bass line is, boom, that's right into me. Whatever that that neuro, you know, that neural path that that spikes mm. or drops when the right song comes on, direct, it's got a direct path to me. I, music is the thing that just ruins my life in the best way. Mm. So um, so I, I, I play piano, but I didn't want to be in a band that played piano. I mean, I'm not Ben Folds, right? <laughs> Uh, so I just I, I didn't know what I could do for a living and I could be around music and film and sports if I was in radio right mm. and so I also would uh, listen to radio late at night like I mean that was a big thing um, growing up where you just 
when, especially when you're, I think you're, you're broke and you, you don't have much of a, you have a small world and you have no hope to get out of that world. Radio at the time really represented this way out because late at night, and it's not the same anymore in the super digital world, but late at night when you spin the dial and look at me, I sound like an old guy. It's crazy. It's crazy, but it's true. You spin the dial and you'd fade in a radio station and fade to another radio station and late at night when the ionosphere raised, you know, uh, so it was technically about space, the AM signals would bounce wider and longer. So you could pick up radio stations from cities in the States that you would never, like I would be listening to stations in Memphis, man, that late at night in the right day, I would listen to Howard Stern on the radio when he was in a station in upstate New York before Howard Stern was on the radio in Canada. This is like the early 90s when people, you know, in late 80s, people didn't have access to Howard Stern. I could listen to Howard Stern. I used to do an overnight shift. And no word of a lie, as I was driving home from work, I would listen to Stern. And as it got lighter, as day broke, the signal would fade. And, and, and Howard would sort of disintegrate <laughs> off into the distance, you know? And, like, that's, that's a landscape, man. And, mm-hmm. you know, television is not a landscape. Television is like channel change, channel change, channel change. It's staccato, right? Radio is, when you're on the radio, your voice is just one paint stroke, and there's a whole bunch of other people out there who are painting strokes out there. And you know the audience, if you're up at 3 o'clock in the morning, it's not because you want to be. It's because you either can't sleep or you're working or you're cramming, mm. right? So you got that audience that you're, you're sharing your, your moment with that it's audience. It's intimate, hey, the, the medium. Best thing in the world. Mm. Nothing is more immediate than, than, than radio. Nothing is. I know, I know people go, oh, Twitter, instant, totally, TV, no, no, radio, man. Turn the mic on. Holy cow. You'll never guess what happened. What could be more immediate than a caller calling you up and you putting him on the air and you ask him how his day was? That is the best thing in the world, right? That is the most direct thing in the world. All, all you need is what he already has. How was your day? Yeah, my day was all right. Yeah, my, day, <laughs> my days are generally good, you know? Even those days where I don't think I'm having a good yeah. day, I just remind myself that I probably don't have enough water in my system and I drink more water. You know? So what are you up to when you're not in your own T-dot doing your show? Yeah, uh, if I'm not in Toronto, I'm at my other place. I, I live in Los Angeles part of the year, and I, I try to get there as often as I can. There's a, It's the fourth largest Canadian city down there, <laughs> um, which is pretty spectacular. It's incredible to see how many Canadians are down there. Wow. Uh, I get, you know, I'm, it, if the weather's right, I'm on a motorcycle. That's it. Uh, that's where I disappear. And then if, uh, if it's the wintertime, I'm desperate to play hockey every night. And I'm new to hockey. I didn't start skating until I was in my 30s. I didn't know how to skate as a kid. Um, so I'll go on Facebook or Twitter sometimes, and I'll just put a note out going, hey, I'm bored. I'm looking for a game. This is like midnight or 11 after the show. And they'll, and some guy will randomly go, we got a game at this arena. And I'll just need an extra? Yeah, and I'll just show up. You know? Or there's rinks outside, outdoor rinks in our... We have like 2 million followers. I'm no, sure no, 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 no. Only a couple hundred thousand. But, but what you do is uh, you, you show up at the, at the shinny rink right outside and you know I'll get text messages, probably two or three text messages a night from different groups of friends saying, hey, we're, we're playing at this rink tonight. And you just show up, man, and you toss. What's cool about the, the league I play in too, dude, is you'll be on the ice and you're facing off against, oh, you're in Sloan. That band's amazing. Oh, you're in Blue Rodeo. Oh, you're in the Sadies. Like, it's a bunch of artists who all live in the same neighborhood who just want to get together and play, you know? It's, uh, I think hockey changed my life. I think it saved my life. I was The way I worked, I was really unhealthy about it. Um, and hockey gave me a break. Uh-huh. You ever do an interview on the hockey rink? I have. I have, yeah, I'm a terrible skater. Like I'm the worst. I got lots of heart and no talent, um, which is kind of true for my life in general. Did Not you a lot. interview Stephen Harper in a hockey arena? I interviewed Stephen Harper in a um, actually in his office, but it was about hockey. Right. Just not that long ago, though. A couple of whenever the All Star game was in Ottawa, it was just standing in that underneath the uh, 
the, the walkway in the rink where, you know, where the players would be walking through. And I had a couple of friends that were playing. So we're just sort of hanging out, chatting. All of a sudden, I see these guys walking kind of burly, but nice, walking through. And then I look up, and I hear, how you doing, George? And I went, uh, Mr. Prime Minister, how are you? Because <laughs> he loves hockey. That's, that's one of the areas where we, we, we share common ground. But, uh, but here's the thing. Nobody hates Toronto more. Nobody hates Toronto more than a Torontonian who now lives in Calgary. Nobody hates Toronto more than an Albertan who's actually a Torontonian. Harper's a Torontonian who lives in Calgary, but now lives in Ottawa. So is he a Leafs fan? Of course. But he's a Flames fan, but he's got to root for the Senators. I, I, I feel for the conflict he must live with every day. Like, I am dyed in the wool. You know, I am the holy cloth man. Montreal Canadiens the whole way. I live in Toronto. I don't care. I boo my friends who play on other teams, you know. Harper, though, he's got to be that guy. He's got to be this fan and that fan. That can't be easy. Not Harper, sorry. The, Mr. Prime Minister. Mr. Prime Minister. You get butterflies when you interview someone like that? Do you, do you ever get nervous? Never. I've never. I, I don't think in my entire life been nervous about mm-hmm. this job. Do I don't feel, know why. Do you feel like maybe there's more of an expectation, though, on you when you have that, that guest? To, to... Yeah, I think you have to make sure that you, um, that you understand your role. You know, I remember interviewing Joe Strummer once from The Clash. I wasn't nervous, but I remember being slightly freaked about it. Mm-hmm. I remember, because I'm into politics because of The Clash, <laughs> right? You know, when I was young, I heard White Riot. That's a game changer. If like I used to read newspapers with my uncle. My uncle is the most important male figure in my life, right? He he kind of you know grew up as a single mother, so you know a lot of big male influences in your life, and it's key. Um, so he, I'd read the newspaper with him, and I'd listen to punk rock, and he would explain what the songs were about. And the Clash were the ones that I really identified with. The Clash and the Sex Pistols, um, but the Clash were a little bit more earnest, mm. which I liked. Um, I love earnest music, you know. I love earnest people. You know, cynicism bores me, man. It's so boring. Irony bores me. Yeah. Satire is cool. Irony is lame. In 2012, go be ironic in 140 characters. <laughs> you know, like, I, I want I want people who are really about something. So the clash were huge to me. And I remember I got a call one day saying, hey, listen, Joe Strummer's coming to town. Do you want to talk to him? And I was on the phone going, y- y- yeah, of course I do. <laughs> it's Joe Strummer. He's in the clash. So uh, we walked, this is when I worked at Much Music, and Much Music was on, if you've ever seen it, you know, the outdoor shots, the corner it's on, yeah. Queen and John. Corner. Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. right up there. So if you go on that corner and you head north for one block, just one small block, there's a, a church there. I think it's called like St. George the Martyr or whatever. Um, I've interviewed many people outside that church. You know, from Beth Orton to Henry Rollins outside that church. And I, and I wanted to go in the courtyard to talk to Joe Strummer because uh, he was religious to me. Mm. And if I were to have a holy trinity, Joe is one of the three on that list. Chuck D and George Carlin being the others. And wow. so Joe, I was standing there with the camera guy and the producer, a guy called Paul who now works on my show. And we were just talking about whatever. Didn't really think about the fact that Joe was coming. And then you see this black car pull up, right? It was a nice sunny day. Black car pulls up, and uh, the door opens, you know, tinted windows, and out comes this guy wearing black and a white T-shirt, just short salt and peppery hair, but more black. He's kind of got that little walk, you know, shoulders are hunched a little bit, and he walks up, and he goes, how you doing, mate? I'm Joe. And he goes to shake my hand, and I remember, I remember, you're going to have to beat this out, but I remember looking over to Paul, my producer, and I just went, oh, my God, it's Joe Strummer. <laughs> oh, my God, right? Like, it was, it was a moment where, and he said something that... You know, the, you know when the, the stadium lights go on and it just all the shadows disappear because he just said the thing you needed to hear the most and you didn't even know you needed to hear, hear it. He said, a lot of artists are trying so busy to be timeless. He goes, an artist's responsibility is not to be timeless, it is to be of your time. Uh-huh. Don't worry about timeless. Be of 
your time. And that was it. Mar- marching orders from <laughs> then on. If you watch the TV show now, you, uh, there's the big opening shot. You'll see this wall far in the back and these big letters painted on the wall, S-T-R. And it looks like it spells Strombolopolis. It doesn't. It's enormous and spells Strummer. So before every show, I turn around and I look at those letters and I remind myself that this episode tonight is my best punk rock song today. And it's just because, because of Joe, you know, because he was about something. So you said music is sort of what, how you get through that protective layer and get to the heart of yourself. What about people that don't engage the music in the same way and you get some, someone who's a little bit more rigid with you? How do you, how do you get on a more personal level with them? Well, luckily... I've been single long enough in my life and dated enough girls to know that there's a lot of personalities. <laughs> you, have to buy, you, know, you just try different ways. No, man, most people are cool. Yeah. I find that most people are pretty decent. If you remember that they're a human. You want to know why Michael Moore is the way he is, right? Just try to figure out what Flint, Michigan was like when he was 10. Mm. What were the dinner table conversations like? You know, what was, what was it like being Zach from Rage Against the Machine when he was 14? What was that like? What was his town like, his neighborhood like? Once you figure that stuff out, you have something called empathy. You see the world through somebody else's point of view. Once you do that, you got a shot at a conversation. And here's the thing. If it doesn't happen, if it's rigid and they don't really warm up to you, who cares? Hmm. Like, it doesn't matter. A good interview is not, did you guys get along? A good interview is, did you represent yourself today? And did he or she represent themselves today? Yeah. You know, that's a good interview. I've had lots of interviews that bomb. Like, lots that bomb. I just don't worry about it. I feel like that's what's tremendous about your show, that you really do have that conversation and you can reach people. I think that's why it's been so successful. So You've been doing a great job so far. Well, this is great. That's high praise from, from you, George. Thanks so much for, for coming up. Dude, a pleasure, man. Thanks, good <laughs> Thank, Thank you so much. Good luck with your talk tonight. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's a Q&A, which I think is cool. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I used to sit in my food and hate them when I was uh, in college, so I decided I never wanted to do a lecture in my life. <laughs> 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 Thank you.